paddles and also gloomy indoors. But uh, amen, we're still going to have a great church service. Amen? Yeah. Uh, let's start off our uh, lesson here today with uh, a word of prayer. Amen? Let's go to let's our heads in a, in a word of prayer. Our Father God, we, uh, we just thank you so much for waking us up this morning. Uh, Father, sadly, all over the world there were people that did not have that incredible opportunity. Uh, but Father, we know that every breath we take is given to us by you. Father, we know that our jobs and our relationships are blessings given to us by you. Father, we just pray for an incredible time right now as we dig into your word to really understand what your dream is for the outcome of this world. Father, we love you, and it's in your son's name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. 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 Well, uh, I bring you greetings from Los Angeles. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Courtney and I had the incredible privilege of going down to L.A. and spending time with John and Emma Causey, who are overseeing the Northwest churches, and just getting some discipling and some training from them. It was really awesome, really special. Uh, and then this past weekend, we went down to San Francisco for a wedding. Uh, one of my best friends in the world, Anthony Fellas, got married, and he asked me to be his best man, so we couldn't miss that weekend. And then uh, Jason Dimitri, who leads the church down there, asked if I would preach down there. And uh, so we had the incredible honor of just being with the whole church all weekend long. It was really special. The church in San Francisco was doing awesome. Uh, at the beginning of my lesson, I got a little selfish, and I asked... If everyone in the room that's been baptized since the beginning of 2018 would stand up, and about this many people stood up. Wow. It was really inspiring, and then we got into the lesson that had nothing to do with that. I just wanted to <laughs> see how many people they had baptized in the last year or so. Uh, but it was very encouraging. Uh, but you should know, Courtney and I really have been looking forward to getting back to Seattle. Yeah. And so it's been great being back all week long, spending time with the church, being in Bible studies, working hard. Um, it's really been a great week. And uh, this church service, I think, has really been awesome so far. I want to thank Anthony and Ty for what they shared during the communion. They did such an awesome job, very open, very vulnerable. Thank you guys for sharing your hearts. And uh, man, Ed is just a ball of wisdom. And we just really appreciate everything that he had to share. And just calling the, uh, the campus students higher to start setting standards for their future right now. And how they think about giving to God and receiving from God and, and the, just their entire walk with God. So I appreciate that so much. I'm going to talk about Ed a little bit more in the lesson later on. Amen. Um, but uh, the title of our message this morning comes out of Genesis chapter 49. If you know the book of Genesis at all, it kind of ends somewhat on a down note because God's people are stuck in Egypt. And there's been some challenging times there in Egypt. And yet God's people have been given this opportunity by God to be protected by the Egyptians and multiply their numbers. And of course, later in Exodus, when they leave, they get to plunder the Egyptians and go through all the cities and just take everything that they want with them as they leave to go into the promised land. And it closes out in chapter 49 with a prophecy about what this would mean for God's people, the sons of Joseph. And one of them is in regards to Judah. And in verse 10 of chapter 49, it says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. You see, out of Judah, Judah was a son at the time, but in time, because of multiplication, he would become an entire nation. And Judah would become one of the main tribes in Israel. 
And, of course, out of that line of Judah was Jesus Christ. And Jesus would hold that scepter as king between his feet and command the obedience of all the nations until it was his. And so the title of our message this morning is The Obedience of the Nations. Amen. You know, by the grace of God, I've been a disciple now for a little over 16 years, over half my life. And I've learned that the importance of, of finding in your walk with God a rhythm and a routine and adding to your discipleship things like quiet times, <coughs> daily evangelism, not missing tea times, never missing church, properly taking communion, giving a sacrificial amount for contribution, dating in the kingdom, spiritual fellowship, follow-up calls, missions contribution, etc., etc. There's so much that goes into walking with God and being a disciple of Jesus. And it's important that we find the rhythm and the routine in those things so that we can do it acceptably before God. But what I found that's even more important is behind the what we do for God has to be why we do these things for God. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that this morning, about the why we do what we do as followers of Jesus. You know, many times in the Bible, we see God's people get caught up in robotic religion, and God is not happy. And oftentimes, when people get caught up in robotic religion, that's the time when God decides to smother them until they are humbled and respond to his discipline and, of course, repent in his in his, uh, in his presence. And so I want to talk about the obedience of the nations. You know, this is the dream of God. Yeah. Some, some of us have been fooled into thinking that God's dream is world evangelism. No, that is just the means to the end of the obedience of the nations. Yeah. And the reality is, according to Philippians chapter 2, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. A day will come when everyone obeys Jesus Christ. Right. A day will come when there will be obedience from all the nations to God. But we need to understand why this is so important. Wow, come on, bro. You know, my daughter is going to be two in May. Wow. And man, time really flies when you, when you get kids. And, um, you know, she's starting to realize that there's a lot more to life than just sitting around and existing. And now she knows she can walk. Now she knows where the food is. Now she knows how to open the refrigerator. Now she knows how to pick things up. And today she took her slide and she's crawling up the slide and going down the slide. And she wants my attention. Whereas, you know, before that she was just existing and doing things on her own. And she didn't really care what was happening around her. But now she's really finding her meaning and finding her own personality. And, you know, for us, spiritually speaking... If we're within about two years old spiritually or so, it really does take some time before you understand that there's so much more to your discipleship than just going through the motions. And sometimes we can get caught up in that robotic religion where we show up to church and we kind of sit in the same area of, of seating and, you know, you sit near the same people and, you know, you go throughout your week and you're kind of reading your Bible with the same sort of rhythm and maybe you even give your contribution every Sunday and you're building the same sort of relationships, getting sort of deep with a number of people and you're just caught up in the robotics of it. And that, that's good for a little while, but at some point you need to take off the training wheels. Yeah. And you really need to apply yourself from your heart 
and understand the why we do what we do as followers of Jesus Christ. You know, my daughter, just as she is now realizing that she's made for so much more, point number one this morning is you were made for more. Let's go to Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus is more than likely speaking in someone's home or the courtyard of their home. And of course, he's surrounded by a number of people who are listening to what he has to say. And when Jesus would speak, I'm sure crowds were generally pretty quiet because they wanted to hear what he had to say. They found it very profound that this rabbi had such deep insight into the Old Testament. And so Jesus is doing some teaching here, and something very interesting happens. In chapter 10 of Luke, in verse 25, we read this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now you know it's going to get exciting. <laughs> Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, the man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring out oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was our neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. You know, Jesus right here is attacking the heart of this expert in the law. Now, in every way, the Old Testament isn't just a law of things to do, but it really is for the governing of God's people. And it created a community and a government for his people. And so when this guy is an expert in the law, in other words, he's an attorney. He's a lawyer. And so in this crowd of people, this lawyer gets a little maybe overexcited. And he stands on up. Maybe one of you would do this in the middle of a sermon. I hope you wouldn't. And he wants to test Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read passages like this, I try to envision what's, what's actually going on. Yeah. Experts in the law back then, lawyers, would carry around with them what they called phylacteries. This was in obedience to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8, because God's people had, had lost the law. God had to give it to them again, and that's what Deuteronomy means, the second law. And he said, this time, in chapter 6, verse 8, he says, I want you to take the law and bind it on your hand and bind it on your forehead. And so after several hundred years, the teachers of the law took this very literally. And so they created these phylacteries, which are small leather boxes. And some are the size of walnuts. And then they would 
they would put them, they would bind them on their hands with leather straps and on their foreheads. And so you can imagine a lawyer walking around with sort of a leather box, perhaps the size of, of a box you put a, a wedding ring in, just kind of sitting on his forehead. Within the box are tiny scrolls. So they would literally bind the law on their forehead. And they would write out on these tiny little scrolls some of their favorite scriptures, or perhaps what they thought were the most relevant, most important passages in the Old Testament. And so when Jesus calls this guy out, it's obvious, he, obvious that he's an expert in the law because he's probably got these phylacteries on him. And he calls him out, and he's probably pointing to the phylactery on his forehead. And he goes, now you tell me, what's in that box? What's in the law? And you can sort of imagine this guy, you know? He's standing there and flips it open and pulls out the law and you know, starts reading from the scroll and says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I can imagine Jesus kind of looking at him, waiting for more. And he pauses and he puts it away and he's like, oh, was that the wrong answer? And he grabs another one and Love your neighbor as yourself. And to this, Jesus responded, and he goes, that's correct. If you do this, you will live. If you want to in inherit eternal life, obey these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is going to continue his sermon when this man interjects again and says, well, now hold it. Who is my neighbor? Yeah. And the Bible tells us where his heart was at. The Bible says that, he wanted to justify himself. Yeah. He wanted to feel good about himself. He knew that he wasn't doing a great job with point number one and point number two, but maybe he could sneak out with understanding a little bit differently who the neighbor really is. And Jesus goes into this really incredible parable, we don't have time to get into it right now, about the Good Samaritan. Now, this guy had been robbed. He had been mugged. He was beaten on this, on this trail, and a priest walked by. Now, priests are the leaders of God's people. A Levite walks by. These are the servants of God's people. And neither of them helped this beaten man in the road. But a Samaritan, an enemy of God's people, stops and shows mercy to this one man. And, of course, the correct answer to who is my neighbor is the one who showed mercy. He couldn't even say Samaritan. These are enemies. He goes, the one that showed mercy. And Jesus goes, now go and do likewise. You see, Jesus goes after the heart, but he responds with action. He says, do this and you will live. Go and do likewise. Why is that? Because how we live our life really does reflect where our faith is at. Yeah, it reflects where our hearts are at. It reflects what we are investing ourselves into. Jesus challenges him to give all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. You know, at first glance, you might think that this means that you can love God with a quarter of your heart, a quarter of your soul, a quarter of your mind, and a quarter of your strength. And you go, combined, I'm capable of 100%. And that's not the heart of God. God says, I want all of your heart, all of your soul all of your mind, 
and all of your strength, implying that every single one of us is capable of a 400% output. Wow. I mean, can you imagine where the church would be at in the 21st century if every follower of Jesus committed themselves to a 400% output all the time? You think that we'd see the world evangelize any, any sooner, any quicker? You think we'd see the obedience of the nations any sooner? This is the heart of God. Today I want to talk about the heart behind our discipleship. Amen. It's not just about do this and do that. Jesus focused on the heart. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Amen. We're going to do a little Bible study on 2 Corinthians. Amen? Please turn your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now Paul talks about the heart more in the letter to the, in 2 Corinthians than in any of his other letters. And so if you want to study out the heart of your discipleship, this is a good place to start. In St. Corinthians chapter 2, we'll start our reading here in verse 12. And I want you to know how discouraging the tone is of Paul here when he writes this. Chapter 2, verse 12. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. This is the only time that I've been able to find in Paul's letter where he specifically confesses his sin. He says, I go to Troas to preach. And while I'm there, it's very obvious, God opens a door wide open for my evangelism. If I were to have opened my mouth, I would have been very effective. However, my brother wasn't there. And I got sad, I got discouraged. There we say, depressed. And instead of taking advantage of this incredible opportunity given to him by God, he just turns around and leaves. You ever been there before? I mean, God opens this wide open door for you to do his will. It's obvious. It's clear. But you're just too discouraged to follow through. You're too depressed to follow through. You ever been given a responsibility by God to do excellent in something? Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's in your education or something at your job. But you just don't feel the motivation to get the job done. You've been there before? Paul can relate. And he says, I blew it. I really did blow it. This entire city was open. This could have been like a Jonah and Nineveh situation. But I tanked it. I totally tanked it. I just got too sad, too discouraged. This is one of my lowest moments. As I've, been, as I've been walking with the Lord for all these years. And he confesses this to the church in Corinth to get to verse 14. Because even in our lowest moments, no matter what your fill-in-the-blank is, verse 14 is still true. Amen, bro. And in verse 14 he says, But thanks be to God. Not thanks be to us, but thanks be to God. Come on, bro. Because he always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. And through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, we are the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, we speak uh, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity. Like men sent from God. You know, even though Paul was in this incredibly low point, he remembered the calling that he had received from God. He goes, you know what? Even in my lowest moment, I remember this. 
Thanks be to God. You know what the solution is to getting over some of our sad situations? Remembering what you have to be thankful for. How much you have to be grateful for. What God has given you that you don't deserve. The blessings that you have received. Your families. Maybe it's not all the material things that you've been hoping for for all these years. Maybe your Christmas list didn't all get given to you a couple months ago. But you've got these other blessings, these uh, immaterial blessings given you by God. And we have so much to be thankful for. Sure, bro. He says, God always leads us in triumphal procession. This is interesting. This is actually a, uh, a reference to what was called the Roman triumph. And a Roman triumph was sort of like a parade through the streets of Rome. And what would happen is if the army of Rome would go out and gain a great victory, they would throw a Roman triumph for the lead general. And while the entire army would return to Rome and they had their, their, uh, their, their bloody outfits on and their swords and their spears and they would feel so powerful like warriors, like we just gained a great victory for Rome, the general would not take the same route. In fact, the general would go and he would clean up and he would wear civilian clothes. He, would just, he wouldn't put on his, his war outfit. He'd go into his bedroom and maybe throw on something casual. And he'd come back out and they'd put him in a chariot and they'd throw a purple robe on his back. And then they'd put a crown on his head. And for one day, he would be humbled out to the opportunity of feeling like an emperor for just one day. And they would take him through the streets of Rome, and this chariot would be led by four of some of the most impressive horses in all of Rome. And he'd ride in this chariot, not like in a parade where there's cheering and there's hurrah, and he's gaining all this incredible uh, you know, fame for himself, but quite the opposite. It was a very humbling time for him to realize how much he's been protected and, and how God has really blessed him. And so it was, it was a time for him to be humbled and ride in this chariot. Following the chariot was the entire Roman army. And then following the Roman army were the captives that they took in war. And then lining the streets were hundreds of thousands of Roman civilians. And the women in the crowd would be throwing fragrance into the air, incense into the air. And you see to every Roman citizen, to the army of Rome, to the general of Rome, to the emperor. It was the smell, the fragrance of life and of victory. But then, for those that had been taken captive, it was a reminder of their defeat. The stench of death. They would smell this aroma, and to them it was a reminder that now mom and dad are dead, and family's dead, and, and their brother went off to war, and he's dead. It was the stench of death. And the Bible teaches us right here that we're in the same situation. That though we have down times, though we've, we've experienced the mountaintop times in our walk with God, but we're also going to be down in the valley at times. And, and, and when we're down in the valley, we need to remember, but thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession. Yeah. There's always something to be thankful for. Always something to be received with thanksgiving by God. And in those moments, we remember that we are the aroma of Christ. Yeah, that we bring this smell, this fragrance of victory into the church. 
Because Christ has already won the battle. Mm -hmm. This bitter stench of death does not apply to anyone in the church, but this is applied to those stuck in the world. It's not about doing what these people are doing and spreading the aroma. He says we are the aroma mm -hmm. of Christ. It's not about what we do. It's about who we are. And how do we spread this aroma? Well, he says here in verse 17, we speak before God. How do you spread the aroma? S-P-E-A-K, you speak. Amen. This is an action that shows that you are a follower of Jesus. You guys with me here? Yeah. I mean, God dreams, yes, of the evangelization of the nations, but he dreams of the obedience of the nations. Yeah. You guys with me here? Yeah. I mean, this is exciting. This is what we live for. This is what we're willing to die for. Yeah. You know, in the last few years, we've seen some incredible things happen in the National Football League. And right. a, uh, an interview was done with Tom Brady a few right. years ago. And they asked Tom Brady, Tom, now you have five Super Bowl rings. you got to tell us, which one was your favorite? And he kind of looked a little dumbfounded. And he said, the next one. <laughs> And then, of course, just this last Super Bowl, Tom Brady won his sixth Super Bowl ring, wow. which is a new NFL record. Now, you can be a Tom Brady fan or not. But then after the game, they said, Tom Brady, now you have the record of Super Bowl rings. Six. Are you ready to retire? Are you ready to, to, to hand in your cleats and just go home and spend time with your family? And he, and he smiled again. He said, no. I want to play for four more years. I want some more Super Bowls. You know, this is a man that expects more out of his life. Yeah. He's going to be 45 years old in the next four years. An old man. But if you look at the stats on the football field. Yeah. Old for a football player. If you look at the stats, he's won half the Super Bowls. Good chances he's going to win two or more. So hate him, love him. He's, he's a very good football player. You know, when you're caught up in this type of robotic worship, your life can be defined by words like mediocre, complacent, half-hearted, static. But when you, when you give God all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, you don't settle. Your life is defined by, by the things that you're doing, by your heart. You want to pray more. You want to read more. You want to fellowship more. You want to serve more. You want to get more. You want to feel more. You want to baptize more. You want to love more. Because you expect more out of your walk with God. Because we're here. I mean, this is exciting. This is what our life is all about. You know, every disciple was created by God for more. Back in 2009, 2010, I had the opportunity of leading the campus ministry in the great Chicago church. And... We had baptized this one woman at my alma mater, University of Illinois. Her name was Dara Teamer. And in 2011, I had moved to New York City, and Dara remained in Chicago. And yet, later that year, her family moved down to Atlanta. And she had been reaching out to her family. They had come to church a couple times, but we didn't have any sort of church in Atlanta, and she didn't know of a church in Atlanta to invite them to. And a couple years later, in 2013, she actually was... Uh, asked to move to Santa Barbara, California, the complete opposite side of the country. And it was very hard for her to make this decision because her family was in Atlanta. Now she would be in Santa Barbara. And what hope would she have at saving her family? 
And so she started to reach out to them, but more importantly, she started to pray to God. And she just prayed, Lord, would you please just give us a church in Atlanta? Because if we had a church in Atlanta, then I know where I can invite my family out to and give them a chance at becoming true disciples. And it was very exciting. Here we are 10 years later, and just last month, we planted a church in Atlanta. And as you could have guessed it, Dara was on that mission team. Now, she's had very traumatic things happen to her over the last several years. Her older brother passed away. Her cousin passed away that she was very close to. Her grandmother passed away. And her father is in very poor health as he now lives there in Atlanta. And the challenge when she moved to Atlanta was that he lived on the other side of the city in a nursing home. And so every single Sunday for the last couple weeks, she's arranged rides for him where people would go and pick him up and bring him up to church um, after his dialysis, which happened, was, was happening almost every day. He had this very uh, important surgery scheduled for this upcoming week. And she was praying because she really knows that, that this could be the end of his life, that this is a very severe, serious surgery that he would have to undergo. And so she started praying again. She said, Lord, please just somehow cancel this appointment or, or move it on to a later week. And God did the opposite. God bumped it up to Friday, this past Friday. Mm. And being desperate as she was, she, she sent a message out to the church. Please pray for my father. He's very ill. He's going through this very serious surgery. And I just don't know if he's going to make it through. And he's yet to study the Bible. And he's yet to become a Christian. And so she started praying to God. She said, Lord, would you please just cancel these appointments and bump his surgery up to at least the afternoon. So I'd have time to go see him and talk to him and hopefully study the Bible with him. She called up Ron Hardy, the leader of the church, and Ron came to pick her up, and they went over to the hospital early that Friday morning and spent the entire morning and late afternoon studying the Bible with her dad. And at 1.30 this last Friday, he was baptized into Christ. And that was working in such an incredible way because after the baptism, in walks her sister and her entire sister's family, who just happened to be visiting in town that day, and she had no idea that that was happening. And when Dara was asked, you know, what, what did you learn through this experience? She said, you know, I hope that everyone really sees and believes how faithful our God is. You know, brothers and sisters, we need to realize that we were made for more. Right. What more can God do in your life this year? Amen? Amen. Point number two, you were made to multiply. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians and jump ahead to chapter 3 in verse 7. Now the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters of stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison to the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? The argument that Paul's making right here is the Old Testament was good for a time. But then God had greater plans. He wanted to give us something that was more glorious, much more glorious, surpassingly more glorious. The glory that's going to last forever. And then he goes into verse 12. Therefore, since we have such hope, 
we are very bold. He goes, now since we have such hope in this everlasting glory that God's given, given to us, what holds us back? What's stopping us? We need to pull out all the stops and give all of our best to God. We need to be very bold. You know, it's very incredible what God's done this year, but it's even more awesome to think about what God's going to continue to do this year. You know, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God creates the world and he tells man to be fruitful. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 7, after the flood, Noah and his family come off the ark and he tells them, be fruitful and increase in number. Later on, they would go into Exodus or they would go into um, to Egypt. And while they were in Egypt, God would multiply their numbers. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, it says that while they were there, they multiplied and they increased greatly in numbers. And in Psalm chapter 105, verse 24, the Bible says that God made them very fruitful. In Ezekiel chapter 36, after being exiled for all these years because of their disobedience to God, God promises his people that they're going to increase in number, be even more fruitful and prosperous than before. Then, of course, if you fast forward several hundred years, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. Again, he reiterates in Mark chapter 16 to go into all the world and preach the gospel. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus closes out and he says, you've got to go to Jerusalem where there's going to be repentance and forgiveness of sins preached to all the nations. In John chapter 20, likewise, he says, go, for I am sending you. And then in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, my martyrs in all Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The church begins in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. And in verse 47, it says that the Jerusalem church was growing daily in numbers. In Acts chapter 8, Stephen is killed in chapter 7. In chapter 8, the church is scattered. And the disciples of Jesus preach the word everywhere they go. And in Acts chapter 16 and verse 5, we learn that all the churches, not just Jerusalem, but all the churches were growing daily in numbers. That takes us to Acts chapter 28. Let's turn there. Let's go, bro. We were made to multiply. And in Acts chapter 28 and verse 30, Paul is there in Rome under house arrest. And it says for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul's got a problem here. He is in jail. Can you relate? Maybe Jesse can relate. (laughs) And it's a very serious problem. And you know, it's very important for us to understand what unhindered means. Because it doesn't mean that he preached boldly and there were no problems. It means he preached boldly despite the problems. Unhindered means he was throwing off the problems. The things that were holding him back. He was not unopposed. It was the opposite. He was severely opposed. But he still preached boldly and unhindered. You know, sometimes we can look at our lives and we can make excuses as to why we're not doing what God wants us to do. And yet we need to live unhindered lives that make us very bold. In 1991, a church was planted in Moscow, Russia. And shortly after the church got there, only 15 disciples were on the mission team. And then a coup took over the government. And there were tanks rolling into into Red Square. And after... Just a few days of prayer, 
The crew lifted, and God's sovereignty showed to the mission team there. However, during that short period of time, there were some severe things that happened. One of the brothers later recalled that during that time, these leaders of the coup got on the news and said, it is up to us to drive out all, number one, foreign filth, pornography, and Christian missionaries by any means necessary. And at that point, many of the, the church, religious church groups from America that were in Moscow at the time packed up their bags and left because they were afraid that the coup was going to endanger their lives and their families. And yet the 15 disciples remained. They stayed there in Moscow during those few days. And then the coup lifted. And in just one year's time, they had over 850 people baptized into Christ. And when remembering those days, one of the leaders shared, it was so incredible. In the first 90 days of the church, we had 120 people baptized into Christ. And he said, it was just obvious. All the other churches had dispersed. All the Christian missionaries were gone. And we had the only church in Moscow. So our doors just opened wide and people were flooding in all day long to study the Bible with us. And they said, well, did you know Russian? How did you communicate with all these people? One of the sisters that were on the mission team said, I didn't know the language. So I just learned a few lines. I would say, get out your Bible. I would then say, read this scripture. I would then say, what do you think about that scripture? And then I would ask a question, will you change? And she said they'd say yes, they'd respond to the scriptures, and she saw the miracles of God because without really seeing anything, she saw the Bible change people's lives. You know, so often we think that it has so much to do with us. And it just doesn't. I mean, we go in and we're like, I need to present in a certain way. I need to be a certain sort of a level of eloquence. I need to look a certain way. And God says, it doesn't matter. It's not you that changes people's lives. It's the Bible. You see, the multiplication of the disciples in the first century was done not because Paul was such a cool guy and Peter was such a cool guy. In fact, it's the opposite. The Bible says they saw these followers of Jesus and they go, wow, these guys are unschooled, ordinary men. And the word on school there in the Greek is idiotech. And you can guess what word we get out of the word idiotech. They were called literally idiots. And yet because they allowed themselves to be so humbled by that fact, God was able to work in such a powerful way, and his word was so prevalent in changing the lives of those around them. You know, for us, it's going to be the same thing. In fact, it has been the same thing. At the tail end of 2017, One of our dear sisters, Leanne, was able to baptize one of her childhood friends, Lisa. And Lisa got baptized, and it was such a memorable day. And I'll never forget it, because she got baptized actually in Leanne's uh, bathtub. They had a big bathtub, amen? And uh, I remember afterwards, because her husband, Ed, was there. And Ed was in the living room, and this is the first time I ever really met Ed. And he pulls me aside, and he goes, now, I want to let let you know, here's here's how we give our tithe. I give 10% to charity. 5% goes to the church and 5% goes to other charity organizations. So I've decided very graciously that I'm going to split that 5% and let Lisa give 2.5% to your church and I'm going to give 2.5% to my church. Does that sound good? I go, okay, nice to meet you. (laughs) And I remember right after the baptism, our dear sister Lori walks right up to Ed and she goes, 
you're next! <laughs> and Ed just closed his heart. <laughs> okay, alright. And you know, for, for the next 14 months, Ed would come in and out of the church, and he would see different people, and come to different events, and things like that, and you could just see his heart really warming up. I mean, he went from, you know, giving, you know, bringing his own presents to literally bringing us chicken wings and food and his special cucumbers that he makes. I mean, he would just bring this just incredible radiance to a room. And I'll never forget at the end of 2018, about a year after Lisa's baptism, Ed calls me up and he says, now Joel, I just want to let you know, I'm seriously considering joining your church, but I'm going to stay Catholic. I was like, okay, let's get together and let's do some Bible studies. And it was so awesome. He came over to my house, and we did a Bible study. And he had already done the Bible study with himself before he even showed up. And we go from one scripture to the next, and he's like, yeah, I already understand this one. Yeah, I get it. Uh-huh, yeah, next, uh-huh, yeah. And we got through the whole study in about 35 minutes. And by the end of it, I go, well, let, and let's, let's do another Bible study. He goes, okay, I'm very, I'm very serious. I'm very eager. And he goes on back, and he comes to my place again a few days later, and we do the next Bible study. And he shows on up, and wouldn't you guess it, he's already done the whole Bible study. He goes, I already did this, but I'll, I'll let you teach me a few things. I go, okay, that's great. So we go through the next study, and so on and so forth, and Ed gets through all the Bible studies, and he was just so moved, so blown away by the scriptures yeah. that he decided to make Jesus Lord of his life, and then January 6th of this, just this past month, he was baptized at our winter workshop. Ed's a lot smarter than I am. He's a lot more experienced than I am. He's an engineer. I'm nowhere near that. It was the Bible. It was the Bible that spoke for itself. The inspired word of God that changed his heart. And we need to, as a church, get back to that. That the Bible changes people. It's not about us. It's not about what we say or our analogies. Just open the Bible and let God do what God does best. You know, I want to give the church a challenge. For every member to be serious about getting in a Bible study every week. Yeah. Now, a Bible study doesn't have to be a first principle study. A Bible study could be you on your lunch break at work, and you just open the Bible with your coworker and show them a couple scriptures from something you're learning in your quiet times. Yeah. But let's redefine what it means to be in a Bible study and really go after showing people the inspired word of God. Yeah. Because we know that consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, right, not from bro. hearing what we have to say. Amen? Amen? I believe that just like in Psalm 105, while God's people were there trapped in, in, uh, in Egypt, God will make his people very fruitful. Amen. Let's close in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Paul says, we do not preach ourselves. Amen? Amen? We don't have to preach ourselves. Amen? Amen? You know, sometimes leaders are afraid to become Bible talk leaders because they're like, I don't have anything to say. That's okay. Open the Bible, let God speak for himself. Yeah. We don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. And ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Yeah, nice. You know, the Bible gives you a very 
humbling explanation right here. It says, you are nothing more than a jar of clay. You see, the thing about a jar of clay is it's not really worth anything. But what it carries as a vessel is worth all the more. And you see, for us, we're just jars of clay. You're a spiritual being. If you chop off your arm, you're still you. If you chop off your other arm, you're still you. We are nothing worthwhile. And yet what we carry, the Holy Spirit, the inspired word of God, the all-surpassing glory, is what makes this all the worthwhile. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, down in verse 13, he says, It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. You know, guys, it's very important that we understand why we do what we do as disciples. He goes within us. We're the glory of God. We spread, we speak the aroma of Christ. Verse 12 of chapter 3 says, Therefore, we have such hope, and we're very bold. Chapter 4 and verse 16, it says, therefore, we do not lose heart. In chapter 5 and verse 6, it says, therefore, we are always confident. In chapter 5 verse 17, it says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. In chapter 5 verse 20, it goes, therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors. And in chapter 6 verse 17, he goes, therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. And then in chapter 8 and verse 24, he goes, therefore, show these men the proof of your love. I've got a challenge for the Seattle church. Together, we need to get rid of the robotic worship. We need to get rid of the robotic evangelism. We need to get rid of the robotic hugging and the robotic love in the church. And together, we need to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our minds, and with all of our strength. Together, let us dream not just the evangelization of the nations, in this generation, but let us prove our love for the world and dream of the obedience of the nations in this generation. God bless you.